Archival Fever. In each episode, your intrepid hosts take you into the archive in search of the wild, crazy, and bizarre. I'm Amy Fighter. And I'm Caroline Barta. Today, we're looking at objects at the Harry Ransom Center, and we're calling them Frankenbooks. These sophisticated, or books made perfect, capture how the meaning of words changes over time. Sometimes this happens quickly and sometimes slowly. A famous example of a word-changing meaning is the name Frankenstein. It originally came into the English language through Mary Shelley's 1818 novel, Frankenstein, or the modern Prometheus. In Shelley's novel, the character Frankenstein is actually the scientist. This fact has been blowing students' minds at least since 1818. Dr. Frankenstein takes a dead body, that's right, a dead body, and he reanimates it, essentially creating his perfect human. However, the perfect human, not so perfect, and goes around killing people. So why did Frankenstein reanimate a dead body? He was playing God. He wanted to be able to do the one thing that men can't do, and that's bring life into the world. He also thought that through this process, he could fix or perfect all of humanity's failings. Over the years, the slippage between the creator and created thing is so strong that the word Frankenstein changed. This can be attributed to a 1931 film adaptation with Boris Karloff that immortalized the monster on the movie screen and really gave the word Frankenstein a new meaning. Frankenstein began to have the association or connotation of combining elements together with generally destructive results for the original. So when we say something is kind of like a Frankenstein, we're saying it was cobbled together and it doesn't look too pretty. And it generally also has the association of death. Something had to die in order for this new creation to rise up. The books that we're looking at today show a similar impulse from their creator. Their old playbooks, copies of dramatic works meant primarily for reading. And over time, if we look at different examples, we can see collectors had their own methods of creating the perfect book. And like our cheery start, It makes us think about the ways in which some books have to die in order to create a perfect new book. A collector might rip out an entire leaf from one book in order to make his copy perfect. And by leaf, you mean page. He might also cut a page because he didn't like a moldy stain. Or he might completely rip off an old binding, that hard back front of a book, Literally saying, I don't like the cover of that book. I'm going to put a new cover on it. And more importantly, I'm going to put my name in that cover. Got to put your name in your book. Perfect goes back to the Latin perfectus, meaning done thoroughly. In early English print culture, most of the time the word perfect meant that you had a complete text rather than something that was aesthetically pleasing. An early example gives more clarity. John Philip Kemble was an English actor from a famous family. He lived from 1757 to 1823. His sister was the renowned Sarah Siddons. She was often considered the best actress of tragedy plays in the 18th century. Her brother John wasn't just known for his work on the stage. In fact, he's well known today for a large collection of historical playbills he amassed, between 3,500 and 4,000. Some of the playbills are now at the Harry Ransom Center. Copies of Kemble's playbooks reveal that his priority was reading the entire play. What he wanted to do is go from start to finish without any interruption, nothing missing, no extra materials disappeared. Like Dr. Frankenstein, whose quest for perfection went a bit awry, 
Those who tried to make a perfect book often faced similar challenges. Today, we're going to keep on investigating the dangerous rush of perfection. We're going to meet a few more figures, including a forger and a thief, who challenge us to update our ideas of what a perfect book is. In this episode, we're going to talk with one of our favorite bibliophiles, curator Aaron Pratt at the Harry Ransom Center. I'm Aaron Pratt, the Carl and Lily Forsheimer Curator of Early Books and Manuscripts at the Harry Ransom Center. And so that means I'm responsible for materials from before 1700. The Ransom Center, if you're not super familiar with it, is a hybrid kind of special collections library, archive, and a museum. And so we have galleries, museum-style galleries on our first floor, as well as stacks full of great artifacts. Um, I'm also an affiliated faculty member in the Department of English here at UT. And I say that because, as that would suggest, um, I have a PhD in English literature. And my training and specialization is in early modern literature. That is, literature from the 16th and 17th centuries, sort of formerly called the Renaissance, although we could, that's a different conversation about why people get grouchy about that. Um, in particular, I study English drama and other literature from the perspective of book history and bibliography. What that means in sort of practical terms is that I look to evidence in surviving books and various types of primary source documents about those books to tell the story of how English literature with a little l became English literature with a capital L, um, how it is that the things that people read in the 16th and 17th centuries became the kind of things that make their way onto college syllabi today and that achieve, um, when we talk about the artifacts, achieve such high values at auction. Can you name some things that people might be familiar with that you would be like popular examples of what you work with? Sure. I mean, the most, so in my, since taking the Ransom Center job, the the great opportunity of my life and the bane of my existence is simultaneously the Gutenberg Bible, mm-hmm. um, which is on permanent display in our lobby. And if you're not familiar with the Gutenberg Bible, it is often described as a lot of different things, but it's often described as the first printed book, which isn't quite right. There was printing in Asia before that. There was also the first printed book made with movable type. Well, there was movable type in Asia centuries before. Um, It's often described in our gallery, hey, there's the first book. Not the first book, definitely not the first book. Um, But it is this sort of, um, it has achieved this status in the world. And when the University of Texas bought it in 1978, um, it became very quickly this sort of sign that University of Texas had kind of made it. When it did its 1983 uh, centennial, they toured one of the volumes to 16 cities in Texas. Like, they built this special case. They had a couple scholars go on the road with it. And there were front-page newspapers in, like, the Abilene newspaper. And that, in some ways, is... So it's this sort of has this outsized importance. But what it is, for me, is it's an opportunity that the first thing people see when they come in the Ransoms, and if they don't look to the right and see Frida Kahlo, is that they see the Gutenberg Bible. In some ways, that book sort of serves as a kind of synecdoche for the University of Texas's rare book collections in general. Also, we get a lot of tourism for the first folio of Shakespeare, which um, is sort of more in the wheelhouse of the um, the training that I have and the material that I work on in my own scholarship. Um, the first folio of Shakespeare, it is the first sort of large format, um, substantial publication, including really, quote-unquote, all of Shakespeare's plays. It includes 36 of Shakespeare's plays, 18 of which had never been published before. So, like, without that book, we probably wouldn't have Macbeth, Julius Caesar, The Tempest. And so without that sucker, there would be nothing. Now, what I actually care about are the sort of 
the playbooks that sort of preceded the folio, these um, individual editions that set the market conditions, mm-hmm. the way I would describe it, set the market conditions that would make possible an investment in something like this big first folio thing. And we have three of them at the Ransom Center. Um, and to the extent that Shakespeare still generates um, deep affection and commitment, we have folks that want to come in and, and convene with the first folio. The Folger Shakespeare Library in D.C. has many, many of them. And uh, there's this great anecdote there of somebody, a well-seasoned scholar, coming in and kissing each page as they turned it. And, and I've never run into something like that. But, the, but these books um, can generate a high degree of affection um, and kind of disconcertingly affective relationships. Um, I mean, we really, the main thing we get that with are the David Foster Wallace fan kids. Um, and so that collection, which is not my problem... <laughs> Not my opportunity. Um, it's not my opportunity. That collection really has that kind of proximate, um, real sort of pilgrimage. People take pilgrimages to work with that material, which is really exciting. And it's also, of course, a major repository for our researchers. One of the things that is both a challenge kind of an opportunity here is that we're in the middle of Texas. And so we are not on the Amtrak, East Coast Amtrak corridor, where all of the sort of capital, the, the sort of the, some of the major capital R research libraries are. And so what that means is, on the one hand, I have to really make a strong case for why you should physically come here if I'm not giving you fellowship money. Um, and also, I do a lot of remote work because I, I know at the end of the day, especially graduate students and early career scholars who don't have fancy research accounts, I know that they might not f- materially be able to come here. And so I do a lot of work um, snapping photos just in my office, um, answering reference questions. And that's really exciting because as somebody who's only been in this collection for about a year and a half now, um, it's really great to have people ask me questions of stuff because that's really the way that I learn it. I mean, I know the stuff that's in my wheelhouse, this drama material, but I don't really know um, I don't really know huge swaths of the collection. So we have this massive collection of herbals, for example, botanical books. I've recently been starting to get into those because of a reference question. So I do a lot of that. Um, I also keep an eye on auctions and booksellers' catalogs because one of the things I do with the modest modest budget that I have is um, collect and help strengthen the Ransom Center's existing holdings. So recently I've been working with a book conservator um, to identify at-risk materials and collaborate on treatment options. Um, I conduct my own research. Um, And my own research that I do here, I mean, one of the reasons I suspect that I was hired for this position aside from being just so winning, um, <laughs> is that, um, that you know, the core of the Ransom Center's early book holdings, or at least the ones that we sort of have our brand name for, are the early English literary holdings, and that's something that I specialize in. Um, some of the research is that I improve cataloging records. Um, I mentioned that, you know, part of my job is to connect people with these materials that aren't here. And so if they see a catalog description that says, early annotations by X, or, you know, inscribed by you know, marry something or other, then these are the kind of ways that people get soaked. So I do description access stuff. Um, I make presentations to both public and academic audiences at conferences and here on campus. And um, I do a lot of work preparing for exhibitions. I have not yet, I've yet to do a kind of large gallery show, but the Ransom Center has the Stories to Tell Gallery. When you kind of come in and go to the left, um, that Stories to Tell Gallery has modules, these sort of selections by different curators or stakeholders at the Ransom Center, uh, bringing together kind of small clusters of items. So I've done one on interactive books, Death and Dying in Early Modern England. I did one on a predominant 
um, woman book collector from England in the 17th century. And I'm currently in the process right now of um, getting up one that comes up on February 16th called Collated and Perfect, which is part of a collaboration with curator Catherine James from Yale's Beinecke Library. Um, it's a three-part sort of thing. Um, at the Beinecke right now, there's a display open under that title, curated by Catherine, that's part of their Bibliomania exhibition. Um, and on the 16th of February, there'll be a display here that I've curated at the Ransom Center. Next week, I go off to New Haven um, to be part of a roundtable on the ideas that this uh, exhibition is generated. Um, and then on February 28th at the Ransom Center in its theater at 4.30 p.m., um, there'll be a panel here that features talks by a colleague of mine, um, a friend and colleague of mine from DePaul in Chicago, Megan Heffernan, and then Catherine James at the, from the Beinecke and me. And then last but not least, and this is something I'm really excited about, there's a small volume, a published volume of essays written by Catherine and me um, that the Beinecke and Ransom Center have published jointly. It'll soon be available for free online. And there'll also be a small print run that we'll be distributing at that February 28th event and after that date um, on request from the Ransom Center's front desk. Can you tell us a little bit about how the Harry Ransom Center's collection was acquired, in particular the materials that you work with? Yeah, that's crucial because the Ransom's, the basic story of the Ransom Center is that in 1957, Harry Ransom worked to get a humanities research institute built on UT's campus. And in the late 50s and early 60s, and really through a lot of the 60s, the oil wallet was big and very open, and the Ransom Center required aggressively and really all areas in, in an attempt to, I think, understandably and pretty successfully make Texas's rare book library one that could um, compete with and have the stature of the East Coast institutions and maybe places on the, the, the major Western West Coast institutions. But the University of Texas started acquiring rare books long before that. Um, in 1918, the University of Texas bought its first rare book collection, which was the library of a Chicago financier named John Henry Wren. Um, and this collection was purchased by Littlefield, um, George uh, W. Littlefield, who was a former Confederate Army officer. Littlefield believed that if it was going to be a real university, with a kind of capital R-U, um, that it needed to have a rare book collection. And now I have to say that um, were, were it that um, humanities acquisitions were the kind of thing understood to make, <laughs> that would continue to make universities' status raise. Um, but it was a major investment of $225,000 for this library of around 6,000 books, pr primarily sort of the history of English literature and print, um, English in particular, with a little bit of American on the back end. Um, Wren was, died in 1911, was born in the middle of the 19th century, born in Ohio, which is where I'm from, so I always like that fact about Wren. Um, he made a ton of money during the Industrial Revolution, and the history of American collecting really is the history of America having more money than Europe after the, world, the First World War. Um, English kind of Industrial Revolution petered out a bit um, by the end of the 19th century in, the, in America was exploding. And because these American collectors understood sort of cultural capital in line with this national history that goes back to England, when these kind of nouveau riche types got all this money on industrial capital, they built libraries on the sort of model of the old world. And, but they had the money 
and if you've ever watched something like Downton Abbey, that story of the kind of decline of the English landed class, that meant that tons of books got dumped into the market in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, especially after World War One. And so the University of Texas, right around that time, sort of leveraged that fact. Wren built this private collection. He dies. Um, we buy. And that's the first collection. And that collection is, is enormous. I mean, it includes a Romeo and Juliet quarto. It includes, um, doesn't have a Shakespeare first folio, but it's got second through fourth. It's, it's huge. And it's, it was the core. That collection, um, Wren bought his books from this guy, Thomas James Wise. And Thomas James Wise was a British bibliophile book collector and doer of dastardly things. And he gave he sold Wren his books. And so he was this kind of buyer in the UK, and then he shipped them over once they had been bound for him. More on that in a minute. Um, Wren dies. Harold Wren, Wren's son, is the one who brokered the sale um, to Littlefield and then to the university. Harold Wren then bought this other collection in the UK. This guy, George Atherton Aitken, who was not rich. He was not, you know, he was not Wren. He was a, like a civil servant, um, 19th, early 20th century civil servant, kind of has similar years to Wren. He collected this sort of weird, ragged collection of books, many of which are in terrible condition. Um, Wise also helped him with that. And so he dies. Aitken's widow sells the collection to Harold Wren. And then the University of Texas cajoles Wren into selling it to the University of Texas at cost. And so it's, a, it's actually similar in size to the Wren Library, but whereas the Wren Library was $225,000, this was $20,000. Um, and I would say the research value for modern scholars is in some ways just as much in the Aiken material as it is in the Wren. Okay, so the university buys those. Those provide some of the base for the English, really the rare book holdings in general, but also the basis for the subsequent acquisitions. Um, we bought a ton of stuff in the 50s and 60s, like I mentioned. A, a decent amount of British literature came in on the backs of that. But really, um, it was in 1986 that University of Texas got its sort of most famous and um, sort of last big collection of early English books, and that's the Carl... Um, Forsheimer collection, the Carl H. Forsheimer collection of English literature from 1475 to 1700. That includes our best first folio. That includes most of our early Shakespeare quartos, these um, single standalone editions that often precede the folio, but some were also published later. And that was a major investment from the University of Texas. Um, the, polit the tech um, entrepreneur and one-time presidential candidate Ross Perot loaned the University of Texas $15 million to make this purchase in 1986. If you are interested in this sort of thing, come to the Ransom Center and ask to find a way to watch the press conference video from when the University of Texas purchased this collection. What I will say here is that the governor of the state of Texas, the lieutenant governor of the state of Texas, the university chancellor, the university president, and Ross Perot, and the Ransom Center's directors all spoke at this event. And, and, and that's... I've never heard of another moment like that in the history of American collecting. But what that does is it speaks to the fact that in 1986, still, um, the acquisition of British literature was understood as a way to build both financial capital, real material capital, but also cultural capital, that we were going to be the place, not somebody else, that could have this collection here. Um, and that is sort of that, – that literally, that purchase pays my bills because um, they – the family then endowed – a curatorial position um, and an, a kind of programming acquisitions budget that provides for the continued publicity and maintenance and 
um, in the addition to that collection. So now we want to dig in a little bit more to those old books in that co collection. Can you break down some key terms for listeners? Yeah. So the crucial terms for this discussion are going to be one, the easiest one, playbook. And a playbook, that might sound obvious, um, a playbook typically, um, well, it refers to a book of a play. That's the easy part. Um, when I use it in this discussion, I mean particularly a printed playbook. That can be anything from um, these individual standalone playbooks, which are called quartos. And the reason those individual standalone playbooks are called quartos is that if you know any of the Romance languages or Latin, quarto comes from the word four. And um, that just means that any one sheet of paper went through the printing press and generated four leaves, four, or eight pages. And the quarto gets its term from the number of the number of leaves that the printed sheet yields. Printed Early printing press prints one half of a sheet at a time, so four pages, then you flip it over, print the other side, you get another four, those give you four leaves, eight pages. That's why it's called a quarto. The, folio, the quarto is in distinction, um, at least for this discussion, primarily with the folio. Um, folio just means leaf. Um, and what a folio is, is it's a given sheet yields two leaves. It doesn't have a, a number-based name. Um, so it essentially, you're dealing with a larger format, right? Because um, if you fold it once and you get two leaves, you fold it again, you get four leaves. Um, there's a difference in size that comes with that for the given sheet of paper. The Shakespeare first folio is a folio. And the play, the most of the Shakespeare editions that preceded those are quartos. There's also a format called the octavo, which you might be able to guess as well, is the you fold the sheet once more and you get eight leaves or 16 pages. Those are the sort of basics for this discussion. Um, and so the quartos and the folios are the sort of terms of art, as it were, for um, the kind of editions that were pr produced of Shakespeare's plays. One time I showed Amy a Dewey Decimo and she got really excited. Dewey Decimo, that's the 12. It's yes. the 12. <laughs> I was, I was very excited. I was like, it's so cute. I was recently doing some work. The The smallest format that you really see in English publishing is the 60 formo. And they don't even, people don't even try to give it the Latin name because it's just <laughs> too stupid. Um, but the 60 formo is that each sheet yields 64 leaves or 128 pages. And they're usually like the size of a, like an inch, inch and a half, those individual pages. Um, madness. And they, in order to do that, you can't just keep folding it, right? Because you know how you fold something too much and it doesn't really fold anymore because it just turns <laughs> into this like sphere. Um, they have to do a series of cuts. And so essentially a 60 formo is like this wacky novelty format. So there are all kinds of formats. Um, the, the big, the common ones in English are folio, quarto, octavo, and duodecimo. And there are 20 formos and 32 mos and 16 mos and blah, blah, blah. People I get innovative. Have, I, have worked, I have worked a little bit with little penny books. Mm -hmm. And they're about the, or they're called thumb books. So they're about this. They're a little bit bigger than maybe two thumbs put together. Yeah. And they're like, like you say, they're novelty books. There's no way there's, they're, not, they're either folded really cleverly or there's, there's a lot of cutting going on. Yeah. They're abridgments from later on, eighteenth, like seventeenth. Yeah. Century. And it's, and it's very common. I mean, one of the things I like about those tiny little books is they're usually of texts that were super popular, the ones that already had status. And so, you know, Fox's Book of Martyrs, which is this, it's no longer part of the currency, but it was this sort of Protestant triumphalist narrative of England being great. Um, but then like the Bible, right? The Bible always gets, even though you think it would be the thing that you would want to um, venerate and be afraid of futzing with it and turning it into a trinket. No, the Bible is the first thing that everybody turns into minim, like tiny little formats, like, oh, like a little verse about like Moses doing stuff with the tablets. And you're like, oh, this is terrible, but fascinating. So we've got those 
those different formats. So the, the quarto and the folio for playbooks, and really most English literature, um, the octavo plays a bigger role in some, like in po- in short form poetry, for example, than it does in drama. Um, the crucial thing to know for this story is that the quartos, um, well, all books in the early modern period, none of them were, pu- the publishers didn't bind them, bind books as part of the publishing process. So I'm a publisher, I invest in a book. All I'm paying for is I'm paying for the manuscript from which I print, I pay for the printing, I pay for the paper involved in that printing. I do not, as part of the publishing activity of generating the entire print run, I'm not binding every copy like a modern binder. That's really not something that comes in until, in a serious way, until the 18th century and especially the 19th century, where you have what's called edition binding. In the early modern period, um, binding was part of the retail part of the trade. That may be that, say I'm a retail bookseller, it may be that if there's a really popular book, I bind up a few copies then just have them ready. But that's because I'm a retailer. I buy the books from the publisher, I bind a few, and I might sell those ready bound. Or if I'm a guy who likes special bindings as a customer, I can go in and say, ah, I want this book, the first folio, with a really fancy binding with a lot of gold tooling, um, a lot of decoration. Maybe even I want my my arm stamped on the cover because I'm very, very fancy. Um, I want edge coloring. I want the whole shebang. Maybe later in the 17th century, maybe marbled in papers, that kind of thing. Those are all possible. Um, well, what it means is binding is more about the buyer than it is about the book, perhaps, right? That the, the buyer is the one making those decisions. Often, sometimes because of the specific content about the book, but more because of their own status. Um, playbooks, though, short books, um, short books usually just weren't bound. You didn't actually need to properly bind a book in order to read it if it's really short. Think about like you have a stack of papers, like a course pack or something, and you're like, yeah, like I'm not going to go pay for, like I paid like 20 cents to print this out. I'm not going to spend like $10 to get one of these like spiral bindings or get it perfect bound or something like that. So what you usually do is you just staple the sucker and then you can read it that way. And in the early modern period, short books were sold stab stitched and that's what it sounds like. You stab through it front to back and you stitch through it. So it's like a kind of thread staple. And that's how playbooks circulated. The quartos usually circulated in that format. What ended up happening with those quartos, they either died, they either were discarded, right, after they were done. I mean, they weren't they weren't super cheap. They were about six pennies. Um, and it's very hard to do currency conversion, but imagine at least like a 10 to $15 purchase, something like that. So not like ha-ha-ha cheap, but if you're rich, you could throw it away. If you're not rich, you couldn't buy it in the first place, that kind of thing. So those quartos either kicked around stab-stitched still, and some of them do survive that way. The Ransom Center has a very, very rare survival of a Shakespeare quarto that's still stitched. But what collectors would often do is they would take a, a ten of the, so of those, and they would take them together and take them to their binder or their bookseller and say, hey, now that I've got ten of these or twelve of these or eight of these, let's all bind them now, because that way you're paying less per copy to bind. And so it becomes economical at that point. And then, of course, you have something that fits more functionally on a bookshelf than a floppy sort of stack of papers. I mean, imagine if you had all your printouts and you just try to put them straight on a bookshelf up. That wouldn't work very well. Those Zommelbande, which is the German term for bound together or you know bound with each other, those collections sort of emerge in the late 16th and 17th centuries. And then in the 19th, 18th century, in the 19th century, once playbooks start to become valuable as collector's items, collectors then disbind those. Because if you've got 10 of them together, you're like, I could break them up and sell the Shakespeare for a ton. And there's this other one in there and I could sell that for a amount. So you're going to make more than you would 
with the, the Zamobond or the Bound Together. And that's an important story because what it means is as these quartos that used to be stab-stitched and then were often in these kind of plain collected bindings, they then have the opportunity to be reclothed in the modern fashion. And so if you've ever looked at an early Shakespeare quarto in a rare book library, especially a Shakespeare quarto because he's Shakespeare, um, they're almost always in these really nice Morocco bindings. And Morocco is this, is this type of goatskin leather that's usually dyed, kind of red, blue, black, green. And with marbled in papers, a lot of gold all over the place. And those get called Morocco liveries by some bibliographers. And that's a great term. It helps say Morocco. But a livery is the uniform that a servant wears. And I like that term because what it means is the servant wears the uniform not to show their own status. They're servants. And that's kind of sad. But it shows the status of their owner. And so the Morocco livery is a term that I think helpfully reminds us that these new bindings that Shakespeare is getting are as much about the owner as they are about the book. Now, that isn't to say, I mean, Shakespeare quarters get sexier bindings than some other books. And so it is about the content, right? That it's got to be worth binding this way. But in the 19th century and 20th century, really the 18th century as well, the end of the 18th century, almost all early quartos of drama have been remade in this new image. And so it's actually very challenging to see the original condition in which these things circulated. And so if you, and, and often when they would bind to those, they would wash the sheets in a, in a chemical solution, a kind of bleaching solution. So the dirt and grime that accumulated on these things as they kicked around in these stab stitch copies, or they just like sat on a shelf for hundreds of years, they washed that away. They would repress them. And so even the texture of the early linen paper, which you can, I mean, it's got a dimensionality to it, turn into paper that feels much more like a kind of modern printout or almost like cigarette paper, where it's got that kind of weird silkiness to it, that kind of shininess to it. And that is really what modern scholars sort of try to see through, right? If I study the 16th or 17th century, I want to see through it. But the books themselves frustrate that ability because these later collectors have sort of made them in their own image. And so those are sort of the main terms, right? We've got the quarters and the folios we've got of playbooks. We've got this stab stitching. We've got the binding together. We've got the disbinding. And then we've got the rebinding in these kind of Morocco liveries, these, Moro- these Morocco collector's bindings. Um, and the, that is the sort of basic trajectory of the, of the playbook. And really most folios too, even though the first folios would have been bound in the 17th century, they've almost, almost always been rebound um, again in these kind of later collector's moments because bindings break down, especially for big books. And so there are conservation reasons why you might want to rebind, but there are also these status reasons, right? Like a really plain brown calfskin binding where the cover is kind of cracking off and the spine's peeling down is not going to sufficiently, at least in the 19th century, convey the status of the elite collectors who used these books as part of their self-presentation as not only an economically wealthy person, but also somebody who is culturally wealthy as well. Um, Now modern art does that, right? Now um, the books no longer are like, ha ha ha, I'm a Wall Street exec, Um, although some of them do collect. What you have is you have your Basquiat, which is like, I've got, you know, 15, 20 million dollars, 30 million dollars, and that's how you do cultural capital. But there was once a time when the old book were a way to do that. So that brings us to the man in question today and talking about playbooks. Um, first of all, is there ever an instance where in an archive you would repair a binding today or do you just leave it in the condition that it's in? We do. We do repair. I mean, I... So there's been a... And as I think some of this discussion of the kind of Morocco liveries and the rebinding, I mean, some of that, look, it's like these bindings were a mess. 
a lot of them. Um, I, the, the breaking apart of the Zombobond is more economic than kind of conservation-oriented. But, you know, look, there's a way in which you could say, um, well, why if we've got this sort of like shabby, like stitched, little sad, like limp stack of leaves, why not clean it up? You know, why not get the stains off of it? Why not make it so that you can see the text that made it collectible? Um, what I think is happening now, and this I think is part of the story that I'm trying to tell in this um, project, is that we've become much more interested as scholars um, and sort of in relationship to that collectors and libraries, et cetera, in how things were read. Well, if you've got the book, if you sort of want the book to be clean now, then you lose the evidence of the how it's been read. Um, And you also really lose even some of the basics of like how it was originally sold. So it's sort of the difference between if you're someone who maybe collects action figures, you don't just want to have them sitting in a box, but you actually want to maybe understand how someone would play with it. Mm -hmm. This is a little bit what you're trying to say here. You don't just want to have the perfect book that looks ideal. You actually want to understand through looking at the book how people actually engaged with the text. Yes. And and I think, so like with action figures, for example, um, people like to have those in the original packaging and as clean as humanly. They want it sort of like as it came out of the factory. And the history of English collecting is, it's sort of, there's a moment where there's that kind of out of the factory look interest in original books. And that's really where Forsheimer comes into the story, sort of after Kemble and some of these other guys we'll talk about. Um, but there's this sort of, movement from I want a text that I can read and I want to preserve the text as best I can because I think of the value of this object as being in its representation of a text that I care about. You move from that to I want the copy of the text that um, is closely represents how that textual object would have come out. So this kind of original condition obsession. In what's what I think we're at now is sort of starting to move beyond original condition in this kind of like I want it pristine as it was sold, which is kind of like the action figure collecting is right now, to I want to see how the thing was used. I want to understand how readers engage with it. I want to know what they did with them. I want to know that they bound them together. I want to know that they disbound them. Um, I think now a like copy with early annotations that were like, this play sucks, or this is a great play, which you very rarely but sometimes see. Something like that that is still stab-stitched would be like the holy grail because we still value that early history more than my Morocco livery history that I'm trying to recover a little bit here. Um, but that's right, that there is the movement. And so as today, um, I think the conservation strategy tends to be in favor at least at the major research institutions, and I think more and more among collectors, as keeping it stable as it is now. So not subtracting those later layers of history, because like, what do you end up getting? You can't really, you can't remake the stab stitch. I mean, if you took them out of a binding, it wouldn't never look the same. So it'd be this like wacky pastiche or like an atemporal sort of hodgepodge. Um, But we want to sort of save them as they are. Now, sometimes like if the boards pop off a binding, the covers, you know what, we just, we make a box for it. If it's something that may see a lot of action, say it's something that gets taught with a lot and we want to make sure that we can, we may put the cover back on, but we may do that in a way, we'll do that in a way that doesn't try to hide that we've repaired it, right? We don't want to, we want to make it clear where our interventions have been. 
Um, and so unlike, and this is maybe a difference sometimes with like people who work on posters, when you want to fill losses, they'll typically match the colors and infill. It's kind of almost like rest. The difference between restoration and conservation, if, if that's a sort of good heuristic distinction, we in, bo- in the book world have moved far more closely into conservation where we don't hide what we do, but we want the book to stick around. And so if something's just like a little stack of sheets, well, um, a lot of the Aitken books are, we, if that doesn't get used a lot, then we just put it in a folder in Mylar and there's no acid and it will be fine. If it's going to get used, we might consider a way of dealing with that, maybe encapsulating all of the leaves individually. So we're not making a binding, but we're keeping the paper from deteriorating further. But the goal is this kind of minimal intervention strategy where we want to present as much of the history as possible to researchers, students, public. So Kemble. Okay. So (laughs) Kemble is my favorite villain other than TJ Wise. Um, So Kemble was an actor, English actor in 1757 to 1823. Um, He came from an acting family. He was well known as the son of an actor. He did a ton of, you know, Shakespeare performances, well-known guy. He had the money and prices were not yet insane. And so he built a collection of 3,500 to 4,000 playbooks. Um, These included early editions by Shakespeare and friends. Um, And when he retired from the stage in the early 19th century, he sold off this entire collection to this man named William Cavendish, the Duke of Devonshire, who then added more and more playbooks to that collection, getting it up to 7,500 or so. So not just adding a little, like he doubled the collection basically. And his family then sold off the collection to Henry E. Huntington of the Huntington Library in California in 1914. Huntington um, was interested in, again, preserving copies of editions, still with this idea for reading them. I mean, they were important as artifacts, right? He wanted not just the, like, a later quarto of Hamlet. He wanted all the quartos of Hamlet. And Devonshire had one of the two surviving copies of the first quarto of Hamlet, which is really weird. Um, Huntington, though, sold off dupes from that collection. So the Kimball Devonshire collection, Huntington sold off dupes from that collection and the Ransom Center has a number of them. They're spread to the the winds and I know private collectors who have copies. The crucial thing to know about Kimball is when he collected them, um, he didn't bind them individually. He did the Zombobond thing. He did the binding together thing. And um, so he would get these plays that had lived fairly long lives by the time he was collecting at the end of the 18th century and the early 19th century. He would get these things together and he would want to bind them together. But he had a problem because they were not all the right size anymore, right? Some of them had been bound before. Um, so he had this problem where uh, he wanted them to bind them together, but he kind of wanted them to be the same size to bind together. And so he did something that most people now think of as unforgivable. He would take all the leaves and crop away the entire margin, the gutter, no more margin fold. He would crop them all the way down to the text block and he would inlay them like a, into a, like a frame of newer, whiter paper. Um, and then he would write, ah, I've looked at this copy and I've deemed it perfect. And he would write this thing on the title page called collated, collated and perfect. And he would say, I've looked it over. It's up to snuff. JPK, John Philip Kimball. And he would date it 1798, 1803, whatever. Earlier collectors had used this term collated and perfect from the beginning of the 18th century onward to designate copies that they thought were up to snuff. But Kemble, he would just cut, he would cut them all the way down. And they've been described by bibliographers as dismembered. I mean, the language that people <laughs> use is like this kind of bodily, um, like indiscretion. And if you'd like to follow along, we've put a picture of one of our favorites, the wounds of the Civil War. 
which does actually look wounded on our website. Yeah, I mean, normally he would just cut them down to this kind of square and they would all be uniformly cut down. But the wounds of Civil War, who knows what was going on with it, but he cut it almost like a keyhole style shape, just matching the contours of the printed text, which isn't in a block. It's in this kind of weird diamond, sort of inverse diamond pattern. And what I like about this, I mean, aside, I mean, it's a little bit sad that he cut his playbooks, all of them, almost all of them down like this. But what I think it shows is it, is it helps provide good material evidence of this interest in the text, right? That he's interested in the object. I want the old edition, the 1594 edition of the Wounds of Civil War, but I, I'm preserving it because I, I want access to the text, right? It's not that there's, there's no digital facsimile online of a playbook that he could just look at and read. He wanted the object because that was a way for him to access the text. So he's evaluating the physical object in terms of its textual completeness. Um, the, the Folger Shakespeare Library has one of his Hamlet editions that doesn't even have the title page. It just starts with the play, but it's collated and perfect because for him, it was perfect for his purposes. And those early, those purposes in 1798, at least for him, and I think most others were primarily textual. It's, it's not, I mean, so we get this sort of early collecting and the, and they kind of truck along. These things still survive in reasonable quantities. I mean, you know, there are only a few copies of a given playbook often, but they survive because people valued these plays. Um, but the way that they valued them is not the same way as what I was kind of talking about a minute ago when we are interested in like the, the long life of the book as a, as, a, as a piece of evidence for understanding the reception and canonization of drama. It feels very much like a scrapbook, like when you see somebody cut out like the the people in in the photo uh-huh. and uh-huh. they've pasted in. Um, I feel like that's very much what we're getting at is this like picking and choosing what you want to pay attention to. Yeah, it's like an album, yeah. but the album needs to show the back of it too because the pages are printed on both sides. And so they're really they they are. I mean, people have described these as albums. And and that's kind of what he's doing, right? He's as you say, he's selecting the parts that matter to him. And that's Terrible for the playbook. Great, though, for our evidence of w- how people and why they cared about it. Because we really, you can work with these objects to infer carefully, like, along with other documents, sort of how and why things mattered. And that's hard to find. You know, not people don't, like, usually write down, like, they might like to say, I love a play, or they show that they like plays because they're an actor. But you don't necessarily know exactly under, like, in what way they're valuing the object. And this is great evidence of that. So can we talk a little bit about what would happen if he didn't have a perfect or copy available? What would he do to make sure it was perfect? Yeah, it's a good question. We don't really know. I mean, his criterion, criteria seem to be pretty minimal based on what the Hamlet sort of tells us. It's like, I want the whole play. Um, I don't know. I, I honestly can't remember if there are Kimball playbooks that have like the final, like a missing final leaf written in a manuscript. I, I don't. I don't believe he would, if he did have them, I don't believe he would designate them as such. Um, so it's really, um, he is somebody who's in a position to acquire only copies that are up to his standards. And this is because he's earlier, he's closer to the time period, so there's probably better copies circulating around. There are at least more affordable copies for somebody. I mean, look, he's not a poor guy. I mean, he's a right. well-known actor. But he, but look, I mean, there was a copy of... Um, a 1619 edition of Henry V that was up on the block not a couple years ago, in 2014, I believe it was, and it sold for $450,000, right? And there, and that's not the first edition. Um, there was a early quarto of an earlier Hamlet quarto, 1611, which is the last of the kind of during Shakespeare's life quartos really hit the market, and that was um, 
estimated at like 1.5 million sale. It didn't sell at that auction. It didn't hit that, but I think it sold kind of on the back burner, as it were, for right around a million dollars. So this is that's real money. Um, not to say that like 50,000 wouldn't be real money or something like that, but we're really dealing with a moment where they're accruing value, but you could imagine being in a position to get them. Also, crucially for the story story of the Ransom Center and other institutions, is that more of them are in private hands. And so as collectors die, there is this sort of trickle off or peel off of copies into institutional environments. And so really like of really early play quartos, Shakespeare quartos and Shakespeare and Friends, not a ton of them are still in private hands. And so they've mostly sort of left the book trade. And that's one of the reasons why the prices have skyrocketed in the past um, half century or so, because most copies just sort of disappear from the, the book trade. I mean, it used to be that some of these playbooks would hit the market. Um, there's one example in the exhibition where the same copy switched hands. It was owned by five people in 15 years. And that's because people are collecting later in life. So they either die or they change interest really rapidly. They're like, I'll collect all of this. And then I'll sell those and I'll collect all of this. And um, it's just this kind of mania in America. And so a lot of these copies are switching hands really rapidly. And so there's just active book trade. People can compete against each other in this kind of male, kind of masculine kind of way. And then now there are so many of them in institutions that like when things come up, the prices go bananas um, and they very rarely do. Can you describe how Thomas Weiss, who is sort of the next figure in your um, description of the search for the perfect, what he um, contributed to the idea of a perfect copy in the history of uh, English yeah. book collecting? So T.J. Wise, so I, I said that Kimball is my ki- as a kind of villain of my story, but he's the kind of like... Oh, shucks. He's like the sort of like uncle who's made some really bad choices, but you're like, oh, he's still my uncle. That's Kimball. Now, T.J. Wise is a more an immoral, mean, unethical guy. I mean, T.J. Wise became famous. So this is such a great coup. So T.J. Wise was supplying books to Rand Aitken. He was making his own collection known as the Ashley Library. Thomas Wise dies in the early 20th century, and his... Collection ends up getting sold to the British Museum, which is now the British Library. This is so brilliant. So he dies in 37. The personal collection goes to the British Museum, now the British Library. Great bibliographer of the British Library some years later in the 1950s is looking through the Ashley copies and comparing them to copies that had come from the collection of David Garrick, this important 18th century actor. Who had a big kind of like a like a pre-Kemble kind of Kemble. He collected playbooks. They weren't Kembled, but they were um, nice playbooks. And he started comparing them. He's like, oh, oh no, some of the leaves are missing from the Garrett copies here, and um, they're in some of them are in these copies that I'm looking at right now from Wise's library. Not great. Um, so, so there's that, and I'll I'll say a little bit more about that. Wise also became famous earlier than that. Because Wise started forging 19th century editions by writers. So, like, say there was, like, a kind of short-form Dickens work, like a kind of pamphlet-length Dickens work that came out in, I don't know, I'm just making this up, like 1852 or something. He'd be like, ah, well, I have found an edition from 1850. And he would, and because, you know, he was working in the early 20th century when the same, um, the same kinds of paper, the same equipment that was used to print this was still around. Right? Like you could actually get a printing press that was used to print the 1850 edition, that style. So he was kicking off these forgeries. But since there wasn't an internet, 
or any sort of easy way. He was, he sold a bunch of them. He's like, you're getting this really unique thing. And, um, and that got discovered in the twenties. Why wise was still alive and wise denied it. And there's all this rigmarole about it. Um, ran, has a wonderful collection of these T.J. Wise forgeries because he had his stuff. Um, so it was this thing that sort of put Wise on the map as this dastardly dude. I mean, Wise was the president of the Bibliographical Society for a while. I mean, Wise was like a well-known bibliophile and member of high status in the community. And his uh, his his, culture, his own cultural capital and esteem tanked pretty aggressively. Um, but it was in the late 1950s that um, David Foxen, this bibliographer at the British Library, realized that there was a problem. And he also learned that Wren was some who had bought from Wise. And so the University of Texas actually, sh- my understanding is that we shipped our copy, the Wren copies of playbooks that were known to be, the, the corresponding edition at the BM was known to be, Miss British Library was known to be missing leaves. And so we shipped a bunch there. They compared them in Foxen, and then later Foxen in conjunction with this bibliographer here in the English department, William Todd, they sort of sleuthed out the copies both in the Wren collection and the Aitken collection that had these stolen leaves from the British Museum. Now, that's all very dodgy because it's literal theft and we shouldn't condemn that sort of thing. But in general, Wise was doing something that was actually not at all uncommon and was actually not something that was considered um, unethical or even necessarily undesirable. It's it's called um, – a term of art for it is called sophistication or sophisticating or to sophisticate a book. To sophisticate a book is to complete a copy that is defective – using leaves from other copies, usually with an eye toward deception. So that sophistication does have a bit of deception built into the language. Um, A more neutral term, which I think actually may be a better... I like sophistication is just such a good term because you're both adulterating the book, which is what sophisticate means, but you're also making it more sophisticated in the kind of way we typically use the term. But a more neutral term that maybe more accurately represents the sort of way that it was understood then is just you make up a copy. And that's the Frankensteining, right? That that some of the wise playbooks, wise and Wren playbooks, the wise built playbooks, um, came from as many as four different copies. Um, it might even be some with five. So so you've got a copy um, where it was imperfect in some way, missing leaves in some way, um, and then he's bringing together multiple copies to make a really good one. Um, he had an agreement with, Wise had an agreement with Wren that he got the choice of the best Renaissance books, the best early playbooks, and that Wren would get the sort of second best ones. And you can see this. It's not only that Wise would, like if a copy, a copy he was working with was missing a leaf, he would find another one and put it in. He would say, "This it's got the leaf, but oh, it's not as good of a leaf as I would prefer. It's got maybe a trimmed headline. I mean, if you look at that Wounds of War title page, you'll see that the headline's trimmed there. And so, you know, because these things, they're often trimming them down to to um, get rid of damage to the edges. So they often lose, like, headlines. And collectors increasingly want wider margins. And so if you can get one that at least doesn't have any cropping to the actual textual content, that's great. And so Wise would sometimes swap choirs or swap leaves. And so his copy would have the best leaf, and then Wren's would have a slightly crappier one. But then sometimes... There were, we have an example where um, there would be a leaf that uh, Wise swapped out for Wren, and so maybe the one had the headline cropped and he would put it back in. So he's making these Frankenstein copies up. Now, now you sort of wonder, like, wouldn't it look obvious to go from page to page and you'd see these books that have lived different lives, right? Like, one's got a stain here, one's got, like, a hand marginal note here, they're different sizes. What Wise is able, that that Morocco liverying of books, this sort of rebinding in the 19th century, came along with, and I hinted at this a minute ago, increasing sophistication um, 
or skill in making repairs to paper. And this is crucial to the story. Um, by the really the second half of the 19th century, and there's earlier examples of this, paper conservators or paper repairers could actually seam together um, distinct sheets in such a way as to not have a seam that you can really see. They were able to tear them in such a way as to to blend pieces of paper, often using very harsh chemicals, um, to make it so that you can't really see what's being done with it. That means you could replace the inner margin. And so if you ripped a, for example, if you ripped a leaf out of a copy of a library, um, you could say, well, now we don't have an inner margin. We have a problem here. Well, I'll make a new one. And so you can often, when you're looking at the wise books, um, there'll be this you can't really see the seam super well, but if you look carefully or you backlight the sheet, you can sometimes see um, where the texture of the paper isn't quite right. But they were so good at it that really for the purposes of reading and the purposes of buying, there's a uniformity. They're bleaching the pages, they're pressing them so they all have the same texture, and they're trimming them, and then they're um, remargining any defects that are still present. And that is something that made possible the kind of um, Frank... So, so when you think Frankenstein, think of like an ugly monster kind of creature. But what what imagine that like you sort of had the updated version of the romantic Frankenstein. You have a late nineteenth century Frankenstein who actually just looks like a really sexy guy. That is kind of what Wise is up to. He's able to make the really sexy book out of a number of corpses, um, and that is really where I think also one of the interesting things about this is because now we have to f- learn the techniques to find these sophistications. Is there any type of technology or any type of advances that could be made to, you know, better learn from these Franken books? Yes. Um, p- part of what I'm interested in is with this kind of work is showing the value of attending to the long lives of these objects. And I think I've said a decent amount of that already. Um, but we, there's still things we don't really know. I mean, we have the forensic capabilities to determine sophistication. But I mentioned before that these Zamelbanda, these bound together volumes, have been spread to the winds. Well, when they, those things were originally bound in the 17th and really early 18th centuries, those bindings have the sewing supports that are used to make those bindings happen follow a certain pattern, right? So there's four supports along the back. They'll, they'll be X number of millimeters apart. It's possible, I believe, to X-ray um, some of these now sort of Morocco liveried books, if they still have any of the inner margin left, to determine, maybe not the wise ones where they're heavily sophisticated, but typical ones, to be able to see that kind of trace, that ghost trace of what the early binding was. And with the evidence of other kinds of provenance records, it may be possible to reconstruct some of these Zamalbanda as they had existed in the 17th century. And so if, say you've got six playbooks, you kind of know they came from the same auction in 1820. So let's x-ray those and see if we can see um, the underlying traces of where the sewing supports were. So there's, I think, increasing ability with sort of forensic methods um, to, to get into this. People are also interested in, um, like, getting the dust out of the margin and, like, skin cells to do DNA work on those to understand, like, what kind of breakfast did you eat while you were reading your playbook? This kind of stuff. I um, mean, those are often interesting to actually people who study biology and the history of, of human diet, not really drama people. But but I think this kind of early attempt at using sort of bibliographically forensic te- bibliographical forensic techniques to understand the object, that is sort of an early moment in this broader expansion to just apply every tool that we can now get to the um, to, to, to applying to these objects to kind of excavate what other evidence there might be of the book's own lives, but then the lives of things that those books came in contact with. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or SoundCloud. New episodes are available the 15th of every month. 
Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Archival Fever and let us know about an archive you love, maintain, or think we should feature in the last five minutes of our show. Our show notes are available at archivalfever.com. Our music is by Yvonne Teo. Sound editing is by Jacob Weiss and his team at UT Liberal Arts Development Studio. Financial support by UT College of Liberal Arts. Thank you for listening.